Hey, thanks for being a part of the conversation. Let's do some pod crashing. Episode number 253 is with Lauren Bright Pacheco from the podcast Murder in Miami. Wow, you are on the loose when it comes to, oh, I just love the way that you dive into your stories and, and bring it to us in a way where if I feel like that you're sitting right there with us going, you're not going to believe where I just was. This really is one of those stories, Arrow. I'm not going to lie. This this one is um, stranger than fiction. And I was amazed by the access I got to key players, both the way in which they desperately wanted to share what they had been through and what they had done. I mean, this is a wild time, 1980s Miami. Oh. Um yeah, well, because we, we're used to, you know, in Miami Vice and things like that. We just thought that was just part of the, you know, of television and things. But you, you're, real, you're realizing that, wait a second, this was actually taking place. And I get to speak to the people who lived it. Um, you know, they were the inspiration. A lot of these detectives were consultants on for that show. But believe me, Miami Vice was much more glamorous and uh, a lot less gory than the reality that these guys had to had to face in terms of trying to fight the tidal wave of, of, of corruption and cocaine, the drugs that were pouring into Miami. And with it came violence that has not been seen before or since. I mean, home invasion was a term that was coined in Miami at the time. Car invasion. Uh, there is a story that um, Phil Stanford tells of seeing a routine car um, uh, car altercation where cars jumped out and both people had machine guns. Mm. So it was like road rage on steroids. The podcast we're talking about is Murder in Miami. Spies, smugglers, killers, and corruption. You had me at hello. <laughs> and alligators. Bodies <laughs> left to the alligators in the Everglades. Oh, my God. It, it is like a movie, isn't it? This one really is, and I have to say that the um, soundscaping, so you and I have spoken about this before. You know, I like to create very, very visual audio, mm -hmm. and and as a radio guy, I know you understand that, but um, the stories that we're told are really complemented by the soundscaping that, that they get in terms of flying into a storm cloud with a legendary cocaine smuggler as he tries to lose no less than 12 federal planes who are on his tail at this point. And you hear the crackle of the clouds, you feel the shaking of the plane, all of this in your headphones. Mm. theater of the mind and see and, and maybe that's the attraction that I love about what you do is the fact that you do get inside my mind because I grew up uh, uh, listening to radio mystery theater late at night on, on AM radio and, and because they could take me somewhere and that's what's great about your podcast is that you, I, I'm, I'm in it for the ride I you know I very much know how many podcasts there are out there and i know my, how much content there is for people to consume and so i'm always very grateful um for someone's ear and always willing to earn it and so um i do want to tell stories that really bring the experiences of the people I interview to life and they've trusted me with their stories and I I want to showcase them in a way that's worthy. How has the equipment changed from murder in Oregon, murder in Illinois to now murder in Miami? Because I mean, I'm sure that the recording equipment has changed because you, you've got a bigger eye on the view now. You, you know the impact and who you're going to be reaching. 
You know, I have to say that what's very interesting is the biggest the biggest change has been what what happened during COVID. Um, I've always loved to sit in person with people when I speak to them. And when that that, you know, luxury really was compromised for a period of time, the technology that advanced in a very small little pocket was incredible. So you can speak to somebody who is half a world away and very much now with uh, the audio advancements that have taken place, you can sound like you're in the same room. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right about that, and that and that you know I feel like that I'm I'm cheating on the history of broadcasting, but but at the same time, no, we all had to work together in order to make this happen. Absolutely, and you know what I I do have to say that you know as interesting as it is to have a video component with the people that you're speaking to, I don't think that there is any replacement for the intimacy of an old school phone call. Yeah. I think that, <laughs> you know, people are much more their true selves when they don't have to worry about how they look on someone's computer monitor. How did you get them to drop the guard? Because you're right. I mean, everybody that's talking, it feel, it's almost like they, not that they've rehearsed it and because they knew you were going to one day come, but, but still, they share a story that is very close to their heart. You know, a lot of people have been internalizing a lot of these experiences mm. for decades, and particularly with one of the central murders that we cover. It was a mysterious plane crash, but but very much um, believed to be uh, a hit um, by multiple people that I've spoken to. In trying to come to terms to uh, with this killing and not knowing who was behind it, that really creates a feeling of fear. And and when people internalize that fear, we speak to one woman who was believed to have been in the witness protection plan, and she has been living off the grid almost for 40 years as a result of the people whose paths she crossed in 1981. And so imagine the impact and and the domino effect that that has had on every single aspect of her life. And I think that she was so incredibly relieved when I reached out to her and could link her to someone else who had similar experience um, with the same characters, Phil Stamford. Um, it's the only way I can explain it, and I do so in the podcast, is it's as if there was a capture the flag game and everybody went mm -hmm. and hid and she's still been in hiding and didn't know that the game moved on or that it was safe for her to come out. So it's been a beautiful thing speaking with her as she not only finds her voice, but comes to terms with her past experience and how it's not only shaped her to who she is today, but how she is now able to move past it. You said as the game moves on and yet inside my heart, I'm sitting here going, wait a second, they, they're, they're busting people for crimes they did 25 and 30 years ago. And I, I'm sitting here thinking, Lauren, you're going to get into a, a little area of this story where the police is going to say they're, they're going to come out and they're going to go, she's got something here. Let's go investigate this and let's haul them in. Well, I actually hope that there is a cold case murder that is central to the story that ends up getting closed as a direct result of, of what I've uncovered. And I have been in close contact with Miami-Dade's cold case division with one of its detectives who has been an incredible help 
Um, as I said, I've had multiple detectives speak with me. There's a place in Miami-Dade that um, one of the officers grew up calling Cocaine Alley. And he talks about a house that had two live pumas, cougars, mm. in the backyard patrolling. And then I spoke to another Miami-Dade officer who told me about busting um, a smuggler who lived in a house on that street with two live pumas. So mm. I have a multi-generational view of, from law enforcement of this really interesting, violent, and exotic window of Miami history. Man, it's it's almost like you've stepped into an urban legend and you're going, no, no, this actually happened. 100%. 100%. You, <laughs> you want to think that Miami, you know, Miami Vice was fictionalized. Yeah. If anything, it was sanitized. Wow. See, I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. When I go down to Miami, I actually sit there and I and I, I love to walk around because I just want to visualize those those days of the 1980s where where those streets were not exactly safe or even go down there, you know, uh, uh, near the ocean. And, and, and just, because we're all those beautiful hotels and party places and things, those were alive with action. Absolutely. And it was a very interesting because. In the early 1980s, I was actually in decline. That's just when cocaine was pouring in. And so the money that was coming in, which would revitalize Miami, was was in its early stages. You know, this was also the era where you could walk into a bank with a suitcase and a duffel bag of cash and deposit it, no questions asked. <laughs> and, um, and so, you know, there were a lot of old pensioners and people moved there for a quieter life right at the time that the Marialitos and um, people were spilling in from Cuba and Colombia with different, <laughs> a very different reason for coming to Miami and very different ambitions uh, in terms of what they would do once they got there. And so there were a lot of worlds colliding and Phil Stanford kind of gets caught up in in all of it. I was going to ask, how how much of this is connected to the boat people that were coming from Cuba into the United States? Was was this they have to be tied together somehow, some way? Well, you know, in terms of the Marialitos, when when, you know, the prisons were opened and and these people with significant criminal backgrounds poured into Miami when subsequently they connected with friends and family who were also already involved or had criminal pasts, you had an interesting network already in place. And that led to the reason why there were 10,000, right now there are 10,000 unsolved murders murders in Miami-Dade alone. Mm. Um, And a large number of those happened in the early 1980s because you had a number of relatives and friends and families of victims who were too afraid to say anything and didn't trust law enforcement. And so the coroner at the time had a refrigerated truck that he had to, that they had to store bodies in. Um, because they couldn't even get to them in a timely manner in terms of autopsies. So was it in a certain area? Because it seems like, you know, in the larger cities, there's always that one little section of town where everything goes bad. But for some reason, I just want to believe that this took over all of Miami from from South Beach all the way up to when you when you first enter the city north. 
Well, absolutely. There were residential pockets. And, um, you know, uh, there's an interesting quote about Miami at the time that you could choose not to do drugs. You could choose (laughs) not to, um, you know, do the business side of drugs. You could choose not to surround yourself with people who did them, but you could not avoid the presence of drugs in day-to-day life in Miami. At some point during your travels to and from school, you know, the the detective who was a child when he saw those those cougars on Cocaine Alley was on his way to pick up his report card for, for the summer, but that's the path that they took from his house to his school. And on the way there, they passed their local church where there was a car in the parking lot that seemed to smell a lot worse than roadkill. So he pulled over with his friends on bikes and they flagged down a Miami-Dade police officer who called in homicide. They popped the trunk and sure enough, there was a body in Mm. his local church parking lot that had been bound and gagged and and tortured. there it was it was rampant but yes it was contained initially in miami beach um coconut grove was a place where a lot of these drug smugglers um spent time um the mutiny hotel which is the hotel where scarface took its inspiration (laughs) um and actually these you know the the um crew and and cast from scarface spent a lot of time at the mutiny uh for research purposes and the mutiny at the time served more dom perignon champagne than any other um place in the united states and most of it was served in hot tubs oh my god so you've got someone like lamar chester and and i mean compared to the entire story that you're doing on murder in miami his his one-time little job of just hauling grass around you know i mean that that seemed to be very small but then all of a sudden it's cocaine and then there's also some gun running going on yes so at that time all major airlines for the most part their pilots had military backgrounds and when when phil stamford gets to intercept he quickly realizes that it's staffed by men who all had intelligence backgrounds be it in the military or the cia and miami was very interesting too because of um you know the the operations with cuba you had a lot of former cia who had moved down to be part of the miami wave station at the time which was the largest outpost for the cia and they put down roots and they stayed there and 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 continued to to find employment with some very interesting resumes to put it mildly um but that's what actually ended up drawing phil stanford into this 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 whirlwind tale Mm. Lamar Chester, the man you mentioned, was the largest client of the detective agency that he worked for, which ended up being a front for a drug smuggling ring um, with international um, uh, reach. And when they busted Chester, he mounted a gray male defense claiming that he couldn't defend himself without revealing secrets of the United States government. And he claimed that he had been working with the government in exchange for being able to carry on his drug smuggling operations without um, oversight, uh, and that he had been running drugs in and out of Nicaragua in the 70s, mm-hmm. running guns in and out of mm-hmm. Nicaragua in the 70s, and bringing drugs back. Mm-hmm. And this also spills into the Bahamas, where he owned a couple of islands. 
That's interesting that you bring that up because I, I've, I've developed a pretty good friendship with, with a gentleman that's from Cuba, and he, he was telling me the layout of Nicaragua, Argentina. He says, you have no idea what, what's going on in Cuba, and then it comes over to the United States. And, and so that's interesting that you say that. Well, it's funny. Um, I like to say that Bill Stanford can't talk about corruption without a little world-weary chuckle, and <laughs> his experience in uh, Miami is is where he cultivated that chuckle, and it's only deepened with time. He, he never ceases to be amused by how corrupt the world proves to be. Right. So I, I got to ask you, from, from broadcaster to broadcaster, author, journalist, everything, how do you gain the confidence to make that phone call? or send out that email to somebody that you know has got a story? Do you meet them up at a Starbucks? Do you do you meet somebody in public? How, how does this happen? Any and all of the above. You know, there are a couple of uh, people in this that I had to communicate with for months via encrypted texting before they would even agree to get on the phone with me. Um, so, you know, the, the biggest the biggest problem and challenge with a lot of these find yourself looking over there toward Texas right now or the or the that that borderline, because it seems like the cartel is starting to get a little bit of attention over there as well. And it's like, man, is there going to be a comparison here between what happened in Miami and what's happening at the border? I don't think it's ever gone away. Okay. Um, you know, I, I, I like to say that Phil believes that corruption like water finds way, but like water, it can also hide in plain sight because it can be a shapeshifter of sorts. It can, you know, it can turn into uh, a mist. And I think that when we look at the story, I speak to a gentleman named Joe Trento, who is um, a prolific author and expert on um, the CIA and its covert operations, but also its very established role in international drug smuggling. And um, that's not something that should make anybody clutch their pearls at this point, because we um, have known about it uh, for decades. You know, I think in 1972, um, Alfred McCoy, who's a professor at the University of Wisconsin now, but he wrote a book exposing what was going on in Laos and, and, and Vietnam at the time uh, and the and the deals we made with drug overlords in exchange for being able to bankroll our um, military agendas um, and and covert operations so I think that it's never really gone away yeah. I think that it's it's changed over the years and I think the venue has changed perhaps the illicit um, substance that uh, is bankrolling it has changed uh, it's no longer marijuana it's no longer cocaine mm -hmm. um, we're looking at opium and, and opioids and so unfortunately when there is supply and demand and and the demand for the supply is so much that the level of money uh, that is involved grows to a point where it makes corruption inevitable. It's too seductive. And unfortunately, the people who get caught in the, the crosshairs of this all are the people who often are just trying to go about living their day-to-day -day life and make a living for their family. Wow. And that's what we see in this story as well. There are a lot of people who just end up collateral damage and they weren't the ones making the big bucks.
Listeners need to understand that that with the iHeart app, all, all of your episodes for uh, for for Oregon, Illinois, they're all there, so you, they don't have to do any jumping. They they can sit there and get every one of those those episodes, and that's what I loved about this one appearing right there with you. Just you just look up your name, Lauren, and I mean it's your everything that you're doing is right there in one spot. Well, I, I guess that's good and bad. Good if you like what I'm doing, and bad if you don't. <laughs> um, but, but uh, yeah, it's um, it's very interesting that um, I I've worked so many times with Phil Stanford. I really, I really do enjoy his company, and I think that that's clear when you hear um, our conversations that that we have. Uh, an affinity and a respect for one another, but I've never met a more interesting storyteller than Phil. Well, your life is like a novel. I mean, it even, I mean, the way you explain it and the way that you dig in and stuff, it's like, oh my God, she's one of those super spies. Well, that's, that's, you know, I work with a very young crew and I will tell you that um, at one point, uh, Phil Stanford gets accused of being uh, an operative for the CIA. And believe me, they asked him off the record many times too. (laughs) Please come back to this show anytime in the future that, you know, the door is always going to be open for you. Oh, I appreciate it. I really enjoy speaking with you. Well, you be brilliant this weekend. Okay. You too.